Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week five of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about the Polar Express, the 2004 Robert Zemeckis-directed film. It's a screenplay by Robert Zemeckis and William Broyles Jr., and it's based on the 1985 children's book of the same name by Chris Van Allsburg. I, Caroline... Was yes. not familiar with this movie or this book, actually, prior to seeing this. I mean, I had heard of Polar Express, the movie. I had intentionally not seen it, though, growing up or as an adult. But what's your history with this book and movie? Well, before my podcasting life, I was in education. And Chris Van Allsburg's books are beautiful. So he did Jumanji as well as Polar Express. Those are probably the best known ones. They have these beautiful, beautiful illustrations. He actually won the Caldecott Medal for illustrations. And so... The book was very familiar to me. It's a it's a wonderful book to read at story time. I was taught like the little littles and and it's gorgeous. So that is where I really knew the story. And that's a big departure from the way that it looks on screen. So all my warm and fuzzies about the book, they do not translate on watching the movie. I think some scenes that don't feature the animated faces are actually quite beautiful. And and I think we you and I were talking before we started recording. If you were to pull a still from this movie that look like those kind of lush oil painting mm-hmm. high gloss pages you get in those Caldecott winter books. And you see that here. And, and so you really see the beauty of the animation. But I think this movie runs into a lot of trouble when it uses the new motion capture technology to animate the, the faces, which mm-hmm. doesn't work great. I think. So we do want to throw out a little disclaimer to all of you listeners out there. If you are of a certain age where, you know, maybe you're starting to wonder about the magic of Christmas, this might not be exactly the right podcast for you today. So make sure you take note of who's listening around you before you continue. And on with the show, mister. For those that haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while, the movie is essentially about Hero Boy's journey. He's unnamed, so we're going to call him Hero Boy. It's his journey to the North Pole on this magical train, the Polar Express, which stops by his house because he is, as the conductor of the train says, in his crucial year. There had been no letter to Santa Claus that year. The kid is keeping a file on how Santa may not actually be real. Gasp. <gasps> and he's 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 at that age where belief becomes more difficult. Belief in Christmas and, and Santa Claus and all of the all of the magic that makes that time of year special is on its its teetering, I'd say. Essentially, movie is essentially a journey into trying to make him believe in Santa Claus again. I appreciate the message that 
the most important part of the train ride is the decision to get on in the first place. That whole idea of, you know, nobody's forcing him to believe or not believe, but if he's willing to get on the train, he can decide for himself going forward. There's something that's interesting about this book, and I feel the same way from my educator heart, that it puts a lot of the the power in the children's hands. No one's forcing you to believe anything. And in fact, a lot of the scenes that we see, the kids are working together. They're either all trying to, you know, find the lost ticket or they're all trying to work together to stop the train or whatever the things they're doing. It's the kids themselves that have the power to try to, you know, direct the plot. And from from that standpoint, I think that's another reason why it's a great book to read to little kids. I like that aspect of it because kids kids often have so little actual agency in real life and in movies and in TV shows. Kids live in a world where they're told where to go, what to do, when to sleep, when to eat. The conductor makes several specific references to the fact that no one's forced to get on the train. I mean, the train pulls away twice. You know, yeah. it almost leaves Hero Boy. He has to run and catch it. You know, it, it does leave Billy the Lonely Boy and Hero Boy, you know, pulls the emergency brake for him to get on. You brought up a good point that I hadn't really thought about the significance of, obviously, belief. You know, all of the kids have their tickets and their lesson, I think, meant for them to learn from their trip to the North Pole on the Polar Express is revealed to them on what the conductor eventually punches their ticket as these are all kids who are at quote-unquote crucial moments in their life for one reason or another as it relates to santa and and christmas um and I would even push to say end life because, you know, certainly when you look at the variety of characters, we have hero girl, she's being encouraged to be a leader and to, and to not second guess herself so much. Or we have know it all boy, which I crack me up because don't we all know each of these people? Yes. Like, you know, the reluctant leader, the, the kid who knows so much about trains, dinosaurs, fill in the blank cars, what have you. But I was always spouting off about whatever they know and never wrong. Like they're always going to be have that obnoxious level. <laughs> that just makes adults and kids cringe a little bit. I think that the way that they combine these these ones, you can see that this is a lesson about Christmas, but it's also a bigger lesson about finding yourself and finding your faults and finding your strengths and being willing to learn. It's an interesting query because the four branches that they kind of breaks down to. So Hero Boy has his struggle to believe in things. Hero Girl has the uh, her struggle to be, become the leader that is inside of her, but maybe she's hiding her light under a bushel a little bit. Know-it-all. His lesson was learn, but I think even Santa says to him, it's less about learn. It's more about learn humility and patience. Yes, yes. And Billy, the lonely boy, who I think is probably one of the more compelling characters in the movie, has to learn to depend on, uh, count on, rely on others that, you know, he says in the movie, Christmas doesn't work out for me without a lot of explanation as to what that means. But I think you get the sense of him. He is a kid who just continually feels like if he puts trust in someone that he's let down constantly. Billy's a complicated character for me, and it was complicated as a character for my kids to understand, because when he says Christmas just doesn't work out for me, my kids wanted to know everything about that. What What is the problem? And you could tell by the home that he lives in, you can see that he isn't wearing proper clothes. He's wearing like rain boots as opposed to snow boots and stuff like that, that he is, you know, probably somewhat neglected and, and his family at the very least doesn't seem to have very much. So maybe at Christmas time when he says it doesn't work out for him, meaning, you know, maybe Santa Claus doesn't show up under his tree um, regularly, at least. So for him, 
that's so hard. Like when you're again, like as kind of a caution thing for parents, if you're kind of like, should I watch this? That's something that's going to come up, you know, and, and how do you explain that? Because when you're talking about the magic of Christmas, why in the world would how much money your parents make or what, you know, what the circumstances are of your life? Why would that have anything to do with whether Santa Claus comes? And unless you want to explain more, that was my stickiest part of this movie for me when we were watching. I was like, Oh God, I don't know how to talk about this within Santa because why would Santa be selective about those children? That doesn't make any sense. So this book does not try to answer that in any way. And, and neither does the movie. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm truly stammering in real life because I don't know how to explain that within the magic of Christmas. Maybe as it relates to Billy, the lesson is not that he needs to learn to rely on Santa to be there, no matter what's going on in his the rest of his day, but maybe to seek out and find your tribe who will not let you down and learn to depend on him. Because that's really Billy Lee's journey in this movie. It begins with Hero Boy pulling the emergency brake so he can get on. And right. and Hero Girl, you know, hiding the hot chocolate, uh, f- yeah. you know, and to give to him. And and the two of them kind of keeping an eye on him like an older brother, an older sister. And importantly, you know, he self-selects to choose to go sit in an isolated train car. Right. You know, I mean, he did that to himself. And so there is a little bit of like a, you know, if you can continuously choose to stand alone and never try to be kind of a joiner, if you will, in some way, right. you know, it's, he's lucky that they seek him out, but you know, there's something to be, to be thought about there in terms of like, what role could Billy play to be, to find his own family, even if it's not his relatives, but find like a friend family. It's a double-edged sword, though, and and you and I know plenty of adults like this, the the introvert, the one who, through learned behavior or otherwise, is over the idea of putting yourself out there. And so mm-hmm. it's easier to go sit by yourself because your experiences of when you kind of put yourself into a group have just kind of backfired on you over yeah, and over Yeah, he feels again. like the, the puppy who's been smacked in the nose. Right, and eventually you just stop trying. Eventually you just go sit in another car by yourself, mm-hmm. and, and it is— and. And, you know, but you need but those people only ever get brought back to, you know, the circle around the fire by people like the hero boy or the hero girl who who are tenacious in their commitment to make sure that person is included. Because you have to not only build trust, you have to overcome all of the mistrust that's been learned. It's an interesting examination in the course of a majestic train ride you know, to the North Pole that all of these lessons are kind of being learned. I think Know-It-All is the one who has the flattest arc. <laughs> He's basically the same exact kid. He's not changed by this well, trip, I don't think. I'll disagree just a little bit because, because as small as it was, that one line when he says, my mistake to the conductor and he actually because he he reads it as lean but then the conductor like says you know move your thumb it says learn um you know and he says oh my mistake him even admitting that he made any type of mistake and just keeping an even temper about it, not getting mad, not anything. That was his growth. I mean, I, I admit it was subtle and small, but for the know-it-all character, being willing to just have any amount of not arguing back with the conductor or anything, just saying, you're right, I was wrong, we can move on. That's a that's his whole personality, you know? Which, which of these four 
personality types would you say you most identify with? Oh, hero girl. When I was little, I had every inclination to be a leader, but old tired cliches and stereotypes that boys were leaders and girls weren't. Girls who speak up are bossy, not the boss. You know, that kind of stuff I think weighed on my shoulders. And I'm a middle kid. So, you know, I had an older sister and stuff who was not necessarily a leader, but still there was like a sense of like, there was no, there's no like model for me for that. Even though I have very strong women in my life. So for me, I think I completely relate to to her and wanting to be given some permission that you know you you are the one you're the one that's supposed to go lead them do it and i think now even even in my everyday life i think that i do it naturally now and i'm a little more comfortable with it but there's still definitely times when good friends have to say hey step up just lead just go just <laughs> they're all waiting for you you'll be the one to say to do it and i'll be like uh, okay all right you're right yeah i still need that little permission push every once in a while i need my ticket to punch lead <laughs> How about you? Who do you relate to? You know, God, I feel like depending on the point in my life, it's been different. I I think I probably am most consistently the Billy. I do tend to go it alone. Uh, You know, I I always refer to myself as an extroverted introvert. My natural kind of inclination is to kind of stand off to the side. But I, you know, there are parts of me that are certainly know it all. And there are parts of me that are hero boy. I, I, I think I reach out a hand to others that I see like myself because I don't want other people to feel that way. I'm aware that it's a disorienting thing for a lot of people, you know, not a great choice for many people. So I think there's an aspect of me that kind of it plays the hero boy trying to help others. But I definitely have the, the Billy, the lonely boy inclinations often. I think the reality is probably all of us have a little bit of all of them in us, right? There's days sure. when you certainly lead and there's days when, you know, I'm certainly a know-it-all and need more humility and, and those types of things. And, and everyone has those times when they feel like they don't fit in and they just don't know how to, you know, step into a group in, in some way and they just feel better at hanging back. Before we leave the archetype journeys that the kids are on, I yeah. think it's significant that the conductor stops Hero Boy from saying what his ticket says, whereas he walks it through with Hero Girl and lead and leadership and learn with um, know it all. And he, you know, he's watching Billy flip his ticket over and over again and tells him that's a real special ticket you've got there. Hero Boy goes to talk about what his ticket says and the conductor says that's not any of my business that really signals out to me the idea of belief as a very personal journey which just just to complete the thought that this movie does try to give kids agency that at the end of the day whether or not you believe in santa whether or not you believe in people whatever your approach to life is after a certain age is up to you and it's your choice to do. And I, I think that's the significance of that, which is not something I, that's actually your idea that I'm stealing and talking about here. I'm going to, can I layer on with yours that, yeah, sure, that sure. I love the dynamic of, of how they're doing that with this movie, where they actually bring that concept to real life. Because if you're young enough that you can't read the ticket, then they've set it up to where you as a moviegoer watcher have to ask someone who's older than you and can read what his ticket says because they never say it. So I, I mean, I, I have like the softest heart. I get like such a little choked up throat when I think about a little kid watching this movie and looking, you can like do the, do the like visual in your head of the little kid looking at someone bigger, a bigger kid, a mom, whomever, and saying, what does it say? And having that older person say, believe, 
there's like a moment there where it's not about reading the tickets, but it's about like the message of like, you know, you older people who can read the ticket, it's up to you to lead the littler ones and allow them to believe and tell them what it says and encourage belief. There's something to that, that, oh, it's like a warm and fuzzy that I really do love. And and it feels wonderful. And you're so right about the personal journey part, because that's where he says, you know, the, you know, it's up to you to get on the train. So, so you have to live life, right? You got to get out there, you got to try. And then it's up to you at the end of the day to believe, but don't sit back, don't stay home and don't believe. At least come out and see what there is to see and then make your decision. So I think we have to talk about the casting in this movie because it's pretty unique. This movie holds the Guinness World Record as being the first all motion capture filmed movie. Um, it was also the first animated film to use motion capture technology. Uh, in 2004, when this comes out, we had already seen a little bit of motion capture work in movies like Lord of the Rings, which had uh, used motion capture technology for Andy Serkis's portrayal of Gollum. Uh, so it was not new technology in that way, but no one had ever done it for a full feature length movie and had never done it for an animated film. So I, I think it's important and it becomes important, especially when you're talking about the casting in this, who they got to play these roles, because there were actors done for motion capture. There was act actors done for talking voices. There were actors used for singing voices. So a lot of different people ended up contributing to the performances we see on screen for all of the different characters. No more so than Mr. Tom Hanks. He has such a unique relationship with this movie in that, you know, playing so many different roles. I feel like this movie kind of is Tom Hanks in a lot of ways. This movie was only made because of Tom Hanks. Uh, in 1999, he, he optioned the rights to make the film. And uh, originally Rob Reiner, who's a very famous director and, and has done a lot of movies, was originally attached to direct it, but then dropped out because it took a while to actually get going. And then Robert Zemeckis came on and Tom Hanks had always said he had read this book to his kids since it came out. It was a book that was dear to him. And he himself had always wanted to portray the conductor and Santa Claus. So he kind of, you know, in the greatest of ways that actors can do, went out and kind of did it himself, bought the rights to the book. Once Robert Zemeckis got on board with the film, he's like, no, 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 you're not just going to play the conductor and Santa Claus, Caroline. He says to Tom, he says, you're going to play all of the roles. You're going to be every character in this movie. And they actually proceeded on that way for a while, but it proved too much for Tom Hanks. And he became exhausted doing all of the work, motion capture and voice recording. He was originally even the voice of hero boy like young hero boy he was even the voice of initially really wild right i liked the progression of that though with tom hanks because i feel like in doing that he shows us that all of us play all these different roles at different points in time and again this is a disclaimer part so moms and dads if this is not a good thing for your kids to listen to please turn it off we all play the different roles we're all the little kid we're all the parent we're all santa claus we're all the different parts at different points in time so is fascinating to have the same actor play all those parts i think there's a really significance and maybe it became accidental just as an outreach of having tom hanks play all these roles as the shtick of the movie christians are aware that this idea of god is split up into like three distinct pieces, right? There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Ghost, and each of them represent a segment of the idea of what God is. I think to children, parents often represent different segments of of personalities that I, I think kids often perceive their parents as being many different faces 
within the same person depending on the situation and the scenario. I think sometimes parents are perceived as being the conductor who can be loud, quick to anger, uh, a real disciplinarian, but also has a kind heart. Also make sure your hot chocolate is hot and never gets cold. It gets you where you need to go too. Yeah, <laughs> literally they make the trains run on time for you. From, from the mom's standpoint, I'm like, carpool. <laughs> Right. What is the Polar Express if not a giant carpool getting your kids? It to- basically is trying to get to your activities on time. Yeah. Yeah. Before. It's every mom yelling, get your shoes on. Let's go. And, and um, uh, you know, unfortunately, moms don't have the ability to keep the time at five to midnight for the entire length of the trip either. You know, so the Polar Express actually even has some advantages over your, your best moms doing their best carpool duties. Yeah. And, and obviously he plays the role of Hero Boy's father. So he's playing that basic father role who is who is sharing with. With his wife that he's worried about the end of the magic, which Hero Boy is pretending to sleep when he overhears that conversation. Uh, he plays the hobo, which is like this really spiritual figure, a ghostly figure, even if you will, uh, who helps the hero boy find hero girl and kind of get back on track right but when he comes across hero boy on top of the train he's very lost at that point he has gotten himself turned around and lost he was trying to follow the conductor and hero girl and he is he is baffled and and the hobo who is a gruff figure takes time out of his song singing to get him back on track and get him to the front of the train. Parents often do for their kids, right? Hopefully, anyway, your kids will some point come to you when they're feeling lost and directionless and rudderless and, and say, help, help me get where I need to go. And then there's the idea of Santa, this spiritual being, this idea of hope and joy. So much of who our kids become, I think, flows from that kind of intangible personality that parents have that they bestow upon their children they imbue their children with and i think that's the aspect of santa so i think tom hanks playing all these roles is is really just all of the aspects of personality that parents can have for their kids that's how i perceived it i'm even going to throw out the idea as well that 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 hobo character and i don't like him so but he's also like that sort of random stranger that random adult who pops into your life maybe he's the custodian at school who Mm -hmm. says something kind to you or directs you where to go or some some random camp counselor or something but like that sort of anonymous slash faceless adult that everybody all of us have that have kind of popped into our lives throughout we can't really remember their full name we don't really exactly remember why they even knew where we were but they helped us at some point along the way i had that i i fell off my bike and a a stranger helped me call my my parents and i I don't know who that person was and i'll never know who that person was but thank goodness they helped me right they're kind of my hobo you know they were kind of scary i didn't know if i should allow them to help me or not Uh, i got in trouble for going in their house and letting and using their phone but i i was like i didn't know what else to do you were lost you were lost but they had that element of a potential danger that's Mm -hmm. kind of like an important little layer in there because they're they're the they're the unfamiliar adult doesn't that dovetail perfectly with this idea of you have to make a choice whether or not to have faith in something or and belief in something absolutely you made that choice to have faith that this person was even with a sense of danger this person was going to be a help to you in a time of crisis and hero boy he could have turned around he could have got back the other way but he makes the decision to have faith in the hobo that he wasn't going to do him dirty and it works out it works out in his favor let's talk about the the additional casting of some of these other people because i was surprised at how many familiar names were actually coming across 
for sure. I mean, this is a real reunion show in a lot of ways. You because you have Tom Hanks, who has now this is his third movie he's done with Robert Zemeckis, who's the director. He had previously done Forrest Gump and Castaway, but you also then have Peter Scolari, who was the craziest of the motion capture actors. Peter Scolari and Tom Hanks in the in the very early eighties had a sitcom on TV together called Bosom Buddies, which. Parents so out there, parents out there may remember. There. Yeah, I know. And Peter Scolari not doesn't do a lot in Hollywood. I think he's a more behind the scenes guy. People who watch Girls maybe know him as the dad in Girls, but not a lot of Peter Scolari on the and on the screen. But he had a history with Robert Zemeckis. He had been in some of his early films, and obviously he has the Tom Hanks connection. For me, I thought that was really interesting. I think the the woman who plays Hero Girl's voice, Nona Gay, is a really interesting choice. Nona Gay is the daughter of very famous singer Marvin Gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, though, she doesn't do the singing for Hero Girl, though. They use Megan Moore to do Hero Girl singing. You have to imagine, Caroline, that Nona Gay can sing with, with a I dad. I would think like, she could. Right? <laughs> I, I mean, that would be scandalous almost if she couldn't. <laughs> Did it surprise you that they used so many adults for the voice and motion capture roles playing all of these children yeah it did really surprise me because i think that there are some great great you know kiddo actors out there that would have been great for these roles but at the same time again just kind of going to your point about the reunion part of it you know having the know-it-all from greece eddie dazine playing you know the know-it-all little boy or i thought this was adorable leslie zemeckis is plays the mom's voice that's Robert Zemeckis' wife. So I feel like there was like so many little like woven in people to the story that this really felt personal and special to the people making it. Do you want to hear a little fun fact about Leslie Zemeckis? I do. Leslie Zemeckis appears in many of Robert Zemeckis' movies. In particular, this is the first of three motion capture, fully motion capture animated movies that he's going to do in a row. He makes Polar Express. Then a couple of years later, he comes out with a motion capture uh, animated version of Beowulf, the classic epic tale of Beowulf. And then he caps off the three movies in a row by making another Christmas movie. He does a motion capture uh, animated movie uh, adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Leslie's Zemeckis pops up frequently in Robert Zemeckis' movies, often in burlesque kind of roles and or lusty or bustful roles. In here, she is the voice of one of the uh, there's a burlesque doll in the abandoned toy car. That is modeled on her. In Beowulf, she plays a very uh, busty wench barmaid. It's a thing. And Leslie Zemeckis herself has has made, I think, two documentaries on the history and performance of burlesque. It's a thing she's very into hobby-wise. Fascinating. And Zemeckis, very much in love with his wife and very much in love with her figure, often incorporates both of those things into his movies. That is fascinating. See, again, when I say the the casting was personal, you know, there was there's some things going on here that uh, we can't ignore. What was your most surprising casting choice? For me, I think it's that they use the adults for the motion capture. Now, it makes sense to me from an acting standpoint, because because you have the actors wearing the motion capture gear, you need them to be able to physically convey the what they're doing. And so that that's a part of an actor's skill set is that the the movement, not just the recitation of lines, but the movement and the way they carry themselves. But adults carry themselves and move in such a different way than kids do. 
you know, kids have a, such a gangliness about them, right? They have such a, uh, uh, like a baby deer just learning to walk kind of awkwardness about them. Do you want to know why? Yeah, please. Yeah. Because your joints when you're little are actually like not completely tightened up yet. That description of like a little deer trying to stand up, that's accurate. That's that's why they why they say that boys shouldn't lift weights before a certain age and stuff like that. Because your body's like physically not ready. You're not you're not actually like formed quite yet. That sounds funny to say, but it's true. So like why they're so gangly, why they can fall down and not get hurt, why they can why they kind of flop over the back of the couch, all those moves, it's because their their bodies literally don't work the same as adult bodies do. Well, that that makes a lot of sense, but that's also kind of missing here. You don't have any of that because because you don't have kids doing it. And so I and I and I think it I don't know, it's an interesting artifice that they had. I am ultimately happy though that they went back and hired child actors to do the voicing. I think it would have been very disturbing for all parties involved to hear <laughs> Tom Hanks's voice, no matter what version of his voice or or register that he's using to voice a child. I don't know that anyone really needs to see or hear that. So glad that they made that choice my craziest casting choice was steven tyler when i saw the, his his elf face i was like oh my god <laughs> he came out of nowhere for me so that that was the one that really that took me aback he actually has two cameos in the movie which is really yeah? interesting so there's Tell? there's the steven tyler elf uh who's singing rocking it rocking on top of the world towards the end of the movie and obviously looks like him maybe is the most even more so than some of the tom hanks features though i think they actually do really good tom hanks like the way he looks uh, especially as the conductor a bald a, a bald version of tom hanks is the conductor and the hobo has like a real tom young tom hanks vibe to him but steven tyler looks exactly like steven tyler when he's singing i'm rocking on top of the world but he is also one of the he's an elf lieutenant so he's a, he's like a background artist elf uh, animated <laughs> elf in the movie the big criticism for this movie and this movie actually was not terribly well received by critics when it first came out we consider a christmas classic now it's it's annually released in movie theaters it makes a couple million dollars every single year it makes 286 million dollars in 2004 in its initial run that mount is now up to three just underneath 314 million dollars so it's made 28 million dollars in just annual re-releases every year since 2004 that's crazy. That is crazy. But I think that it's, it is, has an extra layer here that we have to talk about with the whole Polar Express real life experience, because that to me is what keeps this guy alive. For people that don't know, or for people, maybe it's not in your part of the country or the world, as it turns out, every year there are licensed and unlicensed, hundreds of them across the country, as well as Canada and England, Polar Express train rides. There are amusement companies that slap on, you know, the Polar Express lettering to their old-timey train that they may have, and they run Polar Express train rides. And, uh, you know, I did this with my son when he was very young, so I think it probably went over his head, and he had not seen the movie, so he didn't really have any context for it. So other than just the majesty, majesty of being on a train, which I think kids find to be a magical experience because it's so antiquated for them, he didn't really get the Polar Expressness of it all. This is something that you've ever done with your kids down in, I don't even know if it's a thing in Texas. 
it is a thing in Texas. So Palestine, Texas is where they have the Polar Express trains. But for us, here's the problem. Our weather does not really support this type of activity. So I laugh every year when I see my Facebook feed fill up with pictures of kids in these adorable matching flannel pajamas sweating like crazy in the unair conditioned trains drinking hot chocolate <laughs> because it's way too warm for this activity. It is not that fun. Does it, Do we have cold days here? Sure. But they do all this stuff more in the fall leading up to Christmas because and it really actually gets cold here more like January, February. That's when we're we're actually a little more chilly. It cracks me up just to see these poor parents trying so hard. Trains were not like a huge thing with my kids. I know Thomas the Train is a big one with lots and lots and lots of little kids. We didn't actually do this when they were like super small and I think now they would look at me like I was nuts. <laughs> but but I think that being able to live out an experience that you see on the screen is something that is fascinating for kids and adults alike. I mean, there's like a movie prop kind of touring company thing that comes around now, it seems, once or twice a year. And they set up like a whole thing in some empty warehouse somewhere. And you can like walk through and sit in the, you know, Back to the Future car or you can, you know, those types of experiences, getting to sit on the friend's couch and take a picture and stuff. I mean, that's still so much fun for for any age person that if if you get to do that, if you get to be on a real train and they're going to, they have waiters who are going to sing the hot chocolate song. And they, there's lots of beautiful pictures online, if you're not sure what we're talking about, of, you know, they actually walk around with the book and they show the pictures as the story's being read aloud. So it's just one of those things that it's a fully immersive experience that is very unique. I think they could, they should choose many other films, Mike, and do this because I think it would be so much fun. Adults would love it. We, if they did a Rydell High Grease dance on the regs, I could tell you, I know plenty of people who would attend. You are completely right. And I think it's one of the things that's kept this movie in the zeitgeist. On top of the fact that they re-release it in theaters every year, which always helps because there comes a point at Christmas vacation or the run up from some, you know, somewhere between Thanksgiving break and Christmas break where parents often, or at least in the before times, would, you know, <laughs> we need something to do, but kids are home yeah. from school. Let's go see a Christmas movie. And, you know, not every movie is, is good for kids. You know, uh, you know, studios often release their Oscar contenders, the movies that they hope are, you know, are going to contend for Academy Awards in this period. But maybe that doesn't translate to great family fun. And so maybe Polar Express isn't the best Christmas movie ever, but it is a for sure Christmas movie. In, in every school district that I've worked with, you can only show movies in your classroom that are based on books. This is one of the few Christmas movies that you could play around that time, those half days leading up to Christmas break, that is totally sanctioned. So lots of kids see Polar Express in school. It's played every year in theaters. You can go see it and experience it. So it becomes a tradition. It becomes like a nice ritual to do. Um, it, you have the the corresponding exposure in schools and you have the very immersive activity of the train rides people like things that they can do every single year the idea of right and ritual i, I talk about this in all of our podcasts <laughs> you sure do i sure do but i really believe it though <laughs> I, so I many know you reasons, do so many of the reasons we believe in things so many of the reasons that we do the things we do if you stop and think about it it's because it was exposed to us on a regular repeating basis this movie is one of those things that you know it's like how many how many people wait every year to see 
for me anyway, growing up, like I would watch the Twilight Zone marathon every 4th of July because it always ran on a marathon here in New York on the Channel 11. What became what became WB for us used to be like a, a local affiliate station, WPIX. They used to run a, a Twilight Zone marathon every year. I waited. I didn't have to watch Twilight Zone. I didn't have to worry about it because I knew at 4th of July break, I was going to see it over the and course of And around here, they always played uh, Wizard of Oz at Easter. Like I always associate it with Easter. Easter? So, and the thing comes it's for me always yeah. at easter time those I, are the things that i'm watching yeah and at thanksgiving time we were talking about this just the other day. we were talking about this i think when we were doing our elf episode the babes in toyland which is a terrifying movie that i would never <laughs> watch at any other time of the year but at thanksgiving time it's a thanksgiving day like tradition I, I knew it would be on somewhere i would just have to go find the channel and babes in toyland uh laurel and hardy i don't even like laurel and hardy but i would watch <laughs> this movie every single That's year funny. from my childhood the first years that i didn't do it i was very much aware i realized like later in the day of all the things happening on thanksgiving i realized i was like oh man i didn't watch babes in toyland like, this that year. feels so weird it, it felt, felt like so you have weird. a little empty spot there yeah. yeah no no for sure for sure so i think i think this movie it's part of the belief in the faith system, but that's all being reinforced. The movie itself is being reinforced in our lives because of the repetition, because of the immersive nature of it that you can have. Well, let's get into some of the things that don't work about this movie, that especially there's been lots of criticism from critics, but then also just for families. There's things that are problematic here. What's number one? What's the biggest issue with this movie on your list? Can I have like a one and two? <laughs> uh, you, can take, you can take three if you want. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, so, of course, for me, I have this really deep-rooted issue with abnormal body movements. I don't like it in horror movies when people move in an awkward way, and I don't like it in this movie when it comes to some of the motion capture, but most especially their faces. I mm -hmm. really can't deal with it. it it is really uncomfortable for me um i don't think that you get any of the warmth that you know exists you the the people seem kind of spiritless in a lot of ways like soulless if you very will very soulless yeah it's the un, the uncanny valley is is what that's the that's the film turn that you're talking about the idea that humans react on a subconscious level with revulsion to things that are depicted as being human but are clearly not human like our brains can't compute it and we kind of recoil against it and it's a good survival thing man it's what keeps us alive it's what makes us back up and take a second look at things and be like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute you are not you're not one of my species yeah even if you're wearing wolf you know a wolf in sheep's clothing and you're trying to act like one of us there's there's a primordial the back of the brain thing that tells us there's something wrong with you and this is unnatural you know i, I think people experience this sometimes in real life when you get too botoxed up and you oh, you, yeah. you, you lose all facial expression it's a, it's a great trope in tvs and movies the idea like are you happy? Are you sad? I can't tell. Your face no longer moves. This movie <laughs> has a big failure in the in the expression that humans always have. The micro expressions that make us tell what others are feeling. That's how humans. Uh, that's how humans right indicate their their emotions to others. Their brows furrow. Their cheeks scrunch up. Their nose wrinkles. Their mouth turns up and down. Eyes crinkle. You get little the little crow's feet that you have. The it, all of that is missing here. If you're not watching the screen for any of the dialogue scenes, this movie becomes 
a hundred times more enjoyable. And I say that, Caroline, because I watched this movie twice getting ready to do our recording. The first time I watched it, I did not enjoy it. I found it very hard to sit through because I was watching it. The second time I watched it, I liked it a lot better, but I was taking notes while I was watching it. So my head was going up and down. So I missed a lot of the frozen face dialogue. Ooh. I didn't have to watch the frozen face interaction between the characters. I just kind of heard it. I found it much more palatable. I found it much more enjoyable. Interesting. So here's the second thing that kind of bothers me about this. And maybe it's because I'm an adult. Maybe it's because I'm a teacher. I don't know. But it bothers me the tone of how so many of the adults talk, in including the elves, for God's sake. They all have this really sinister layer to them mm. that I don't understand because it cannot be so universal that everyone's like, yeah, no, adults are just edgy and horrible people. It feels so bad to me. The elf, when Billy is having to give back the present and the elf goes, trust me, it's so gross and it's so out of place. And I've never seen an elf behave that way. I've never heard an elf voice sound like that. <laughs> I don't like any of it. Like it bothers me a lot. I understand the hobo, I even understand maybe the conductors, you know, if you if you want to look at it as like busy, you know, super busy adult. I just I can't abide by like every adult being having this edge, especially when it's Tom Hanks. Yeah. Like there's something about that that's like oil and water for me where it is just like I, that doesn't make sense. His voice shouldn't sound so hissy and angry all the time. I think kids find adults to be always sinister. There's always an edge of danger and sinisterness, I think, for a lot of kids and adults and authority figures, that they perceive adults that way because of the power dynamic, the the, the just the size difference, the, the power over which adults, you know, exercise over kids. So it didn't bother me so much that way because it kind of fit into the many aspects of the theory that I kind of set out earlier. Those are not fun elves. Give me elf elves. The, uh, the elves from elf. The elves from elf. The elves yes. from elf that, you know, those are the elves that I want to, you know, mess around with and, and, and have fun with. These guys were like, you know, they were like dock workers from Jersey, you know. I've just were, never you know, seen anything like it. And it doesn't fit the canon of Christmas. If they were putting, if they were talking about putting concrete shoes on bad kids and tossing them in a river, like, you know, like some real wise guy action, I would have been like, yeah, that sounds exactly right for what these guys are talking about. Uh, when when Steven gets uh, the call in uh, from Jersey about putting the gum in his sister's hair and torturing his sisters and stuff, like, mm -hmm. I, I thought they were going to go put a whack out. Like, they were going to go whack that kid. Like, that, because he was like, hey, oh, what are you doing, Steven, yeah. on Christmas Eve? Not to mention Steven. It's Christmas Eve, my man. Why are you messing yeah, around? What are you doing? <laughs> you make better life choices, Stephen. You want to hear a little a little Easter egg, uh, a little fun fact about that scene? I don't sure. know if it's true, but it, it has the ring of truth. Steven Spielberg, who was a mentor of Robert Zemeckis, uh, Robert Zemeckis was a protege of of Steven Spielberg, owes his career to Steven Spielberg. Spielberg staked his first several movies, even when they weren't successes. He believed in him. So Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg have a great friendship that goes back decades at this point. He owes his career to him. Uh, he grew up in New Jersey. So it, there's an Easter egg thought that the Steven... Uh, who is on record as having said that he tortured his younger sisters when he was younger, uh, is it's actually Steven Spielberg is who that oh. kid is supposed to represent. 
That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. I like that. But you know, even that elf scene, that exact scene you're talking about, when he's like, um, time is money, let's go. And I'm like thinking, I have never heard money associated with Santa Claus ever or the North Pole at all. Money and how much things cost has never come into play. But this goes back to your idea about Billy and presents. And there's there's the thing that turned me off about this movie on top of the frozen faceness of it all when I watched it the first time. There's a real kind of commercialism to this movie that I found off putting. And I, I and I, maybe it, this is a that's a very explicit scene, but there's a real emphasis on presents, know it all and Billy walking around with his presents and it, th- th- that whole commercial aspect of the measure. The measure of joy is how much you get in presents. I find off putting if that's the message that we want to teach to kids. I want Christmas. I want Christmas messages to be something about something more broad to that. And it kind of then for me cast the entire movie's message, the good messages, the belief, the faith, the joy, the spirit spirit of Christmas inside of all of us, it kind of cast it in a very shallow light for me. It it all, it took away the depth of the heart that this movie wants you to think it has. And it made me feel like it was a much more surface, uh, a much more surface heart. And that this film was much more about the commercialism of Christmas. Like we needed a big blockbuster Christmas movie in 2004 to make a lot of money for Warner brothers. And so this is what we have. It really, it really kind of, uh, it upset my Christmas heart to, to see this <laughs> in this way. It did. It did. I want to play you a clip. This is this is a Santa Claus clip. And you tell me if this is you tell me what you think about this as far as a message goes uh, and, and how it relates to uh, how it relates to Christmas. This bell is a wonderful symbol of the spirit of Christmas, as am I. <laughs> Just remember. The true spirit of Christmas lies in your heart. Okay, is is Santa what Christmas is about, though? And does does this movie really believe that the true spirit of Christmas lies in our heart? I don't know that it successfully sells me on um, what Santa is saying here. I agree with you very, very much. I mean, he says that he says that Santa is a symbol of the spirit of Christmas. So that's kind of an interesting little jam in there right because Santa saying that though that's Santa kind of being a little bit full of himself no (laughs) I guess so well I mean okay because here's the deal I think at the beginning they set up really well and boy do I hate that Norman Rockwell picture um every time I see that painting I'm like oh why you gotta do that Norman with the with the Santa suit out of the discovery yeah I don't like that at all but if you set that up that like the only way you can believe in Christmas is if if Santa is a man Santa is a man, a real man in the North Pole. That's it. That's the only way you can believe in Christmas. That's the setup. So then if you get to the point of talking to Santa and he says, I'm a symbol, as is this bell. We all represent Christmas. We all represent the spirit of Christmas. Then you can kind of let go this idea of, well, if you're not a flesh and blood man like I know a man to be, then then Santa can't exist. And so I think that it gives parents... I think, an answer to the question asked at the beginning. How do you deal with that moment of discovery? Well, you could say Santa is a symbol of the spirit of Christmas, and that's why we enjoy. Now, that's a higher level. That's the crucial year conversation. That's not Mm -hmm. the little guy conversation. But when you're talking in the crucial year conversation, I think you can go there. Now, I agree with you wholeheartedly because when I think of Christmas, 
I think about those miraculous moments that happen that I can't explain, you know, uh, something that people being kind to each other, people going out of their way to do things for each other, things that happen that just seem like this is just magical. I don't see even how this happened, but it happened. I don't I don't think of all the Christmas presents under the tree exactly in the same way. Like you're saying, like even when they get back, he's like kind of a little like slumped shouldered that he doesn't have a bunch of presents under the tree when he first walks back into the house. Mm-hmm. That feels kind of sucky. <laughs> like it you does. said, that it it's does, like, yeah. wait a minute, did you learn nothing? It, it shouldn't. Why are you only looking at that as the only thing? Right. But I feel like that's the kind of, that's the message. And and maybe, I mean, let's in defense of the movie, I'm going to play devil av- devil's advocate against myself. Oh, you here. are. Okay. Let's hear it. Mike for the defense. The kids identify christmas and and determine the joy of christmas and the spirit of christmas via tangible things like santa claus and presents and so that maybe the movie is saying you know is just depicting it the way it is not the way it should be but i'm a parent taking my kid to see this movie i want my kid to walk out of here with with a sense of christmas spirit in him or her I don't want the message to be when we leave the theater, man, you know, if I if I wake up on Christmas morning and I have 30 presents waiting for me under the tree, I'm really going to be feeling the power of Christmas. Mm. I mean, I spent a lifetime of raising my son to not think that way, that, you know, God forbid he had no presents under the tree for whatever reason to still be thankful for the things he did have. And isn't that hard enough to teach our kids with all of the stuff that they get exposed to uh, between their friends, the things they see on TV, the kind of materialism that's rampant in our country? Isn't that job hard enough for parents without taking them to go see this movie where uh, the the giant four-story stack of presents is the symbol by which they're determining their their level of Christmasness? You know? Yeah. Well, and you know what makes me super sad is the concept that the bell stops being heard as you get older, because I don't agree with that at all. I still hear the bell. Mm-hmm. And and that's crazy that, you know, the idea that as you get older, the majority of people lose their Christmas spirit. I mean, I'm more I, Christmassy now at 42 and a half years old. I'm just about to turn 43. So I, oh, I I'm, think you're more than a half. 42 I, well, I know. And like, like, I'm 42 and 11 twelfths. 11 twelfths. Yeah. I'm 42 and 11 twelfths. Uh, and and <laughs> I'm, I'm more Christmassy now than I've probably ever been in my life. And you know what? You know, my, my son got me a mug for Christmas this year. It got me a, a best dad in the world mug. And that that was it. And you know what? It was the best present he could have gotten me. I had last gotten a mug from him when he was like five or six, I think. And I've been using the same one since now. And he's 12 now. I didn't need presents under my tree from Tom to to make me feel the joy of Christmas. You know, it was the spirit of the thing that was inside of me. I feel that now more than ever. I think I would definitely hear the bell. All of that, all of that is a bad message. I want this movie to end with a hero boy as an adult, the net who's playing the narrator, Tom Hanks again as the narrator. I want him to say, all of, you know, my sister Sarah, she still hears the bell. So do I. Why? Because he went on this journey in his crucial year. So he's he's extra special imbued. What about all the kids that always believed in Christmas and, and had their hearts in the right place and were able to hear the bell? So let's I felt get- so bad that Sarah, like, didn't get the train ride. 
Is that what we were supposed to feel? Well, she wasn't. Well, she wasn't old enough. She wasn't old enough. No, 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 no. I don't mean go at the same time. I mean, like, so her crucial year, she didn't go on the train and she stopped hearing the bell. Like, that bothered me. Well, I think the idea is that I think if you asked Hero Girl or Know It All or Billy, that they too would have stopped hearing it. That Hero Boy was special because of his journey which was focused around belief and the first Christmas present and the bell that he, he had to work so hard to overcome, to learn, to hear May, it makes like, me imbued sad. Him. I get the, uh, yeah, I get the plot, I but I don't you. like I it. I agree with you. It's a horrible message. I want, I want, yeah. I want, I want to see, I want to see Billy's parents, uh, not Billy. I want to see hero boy's parents picking up the bell and still being able to hear it. Yeah, I, I want them you. to still be able to hear. I want them to give their son a knowing look and say, I get it. I know what you hear. I hear it, too. That's the movie I want, because that's the movie that comes out. I walk out of the theater and I can talk to my kids that, you know, no matter what happens, you know, it's about it's about this thing inside of you. And it's not actually measured by how many presents. It's not measured by Santa Claus, you know. I think I've done a good job because that never comes up. It's more about the feeling of Christmas and and the joy and hope and and good goodwill towards men that I try very hard to imbue him with. But everyone should be able to hear the bell, Caroline. That's the I totally I agree. Say. I I completely agree. Christmas should be accessible to everyone. The spirit of Christmas should be here all the time. That's why we did this podcast, right? To keep it going all year round because it is a special thing and everyone can have it in their lives. Most of these Christmas movies have been around for so long and have so much lore about them that they usually have some great facts or Easter eggs that are buried within Hit them. Hit me up with one. Mike, go and hear some. That cover that Hero Boy has in his Santa file, that was actually a very real cover of the Saturday Evening Post. It was actually Norman Rockwell's last Christmas cover he did for the Saturday Evening Post. And it's other than the discovery written across the bottom, that's an exact recreation, even including the little Danamora headline in the upper right hand corner. That was exactly how that magazine, the Saturday Evening Post looked on December 29th, 1956, which makes this movie have to take place probably sometime in 1957 or later. Fast fact, this was Mechas's take on A Christmas Carol, which I found fascinating. And if you look throughout the movie, there's little things like a Scrooge puppet. There's an Easter egg referencing the Dickens story. Um, you can check it out at timestamp 10 minutes and 20 seconds. And plus the plot is basically a reworking of the holiday classic where, you know, he doesn't believe at the beginning, but he believes at the end. Uh, it's a great Easter egg, too, because he would then go on to make A Christmas Carol. So it, it, it almost creates like a shared motion capture animated universe because you have the Scrooge puppet in this movie. But then you actually have Zebekus doing the Scrooge story in A Christmas Carol two movies later. The address that we hear, Billy's address, uh, 111344 uh, Edbrook, that was actually Robert Zemeckis' real life childhood home address in the uh, south side of Chicago where he grew up. Oh, I love that. Polar Express is a Grammy winner. So even though it got a lot of negative reviews from critics, the, the, the song Believe, written by Glenn Ballard and Alan Silvestri, actually won a Grammy. I think Jen Josh Groban performed it, right? 
Yeah. Yep. And he, Josh Groban, also has, I think he has like the number nine best-selling Christmas album of all time also, like separately from this movie. So Josh Groban, really big, really big in the spirit of Christmas. I make a bet, <laughs> I make a bet he doesn't mention presents when you ask him what Christmas is about. On the tickets, you'll see that they all have the number on the golden tickets all the kids have. They all have the number 1225 on them. Not only is that the date of Christmas, December 25th, but the the train that was used as a model for the Polar Express is a Pierre Marquette number 1225. So the 1225 has like kind of a double meaning, double hidden meaning on it. All right, Mike, while I'm thinking about my jingle bells, I want you to play me a clip for next week's movie so I can be noodling on this. All right. Here is a clip of what we're watching next week. Oh, Christmas isn't just a day. It's a frame of mind. And that's what's been changing. Ooh, that sounds old timey, Mike. Um... I could, I could tell because he's a little like a sing-songy about his voice. Oh, gosh. I, I feel like it's black and white, but I don't know it. What is it? It is Miracle on 34th Street. We are watching the original, in case you guys want to watch along with us, we're watching the original 1947 Miracle on 34th Street, the black and white version, not the colorized version. So Robert Zemeckis famously did his first big breakout movie was Back to the Future, Caroline. There are two really fun Back to the Future Easter eggs hidden in this movie. One, in his uh, in Hero Boy Santa File, there is a picture of Santa's on strike, the like mall Santa's on strike. In their picket signs that they're holding, there's a reference to the Lone Pine Mall construction. That's the, that's the name of where Marty learns about time travel from Doc. It's originally the Twin Pine Mall, but when Marty goes back in time, he knocks over one of the pine trees and becomes the Lone Pine Tree Mall, you know, after his trip back into the back to the past. Uh, so there's a nice little, you know, uh, little Easter egg there because they're protesting the construction of the Lone Pine Mall. Uh, the second one is, and this explains how the train is able to get to the North Pole uh, and, and it's always at five minutes to midnight. The train has a flux capacitor within it. And anyone who knows from Back to the Future, uh, the flex capacitor is what makes time travel possible in Back to the Future in the engine compartment. When Hero Boy finally makes his way up to the front of the train with Hobo's, uh, with the hobo's help, uh, among all the nips and bobs and knobs and stuff, there is a flex capacitor in the uh, Polar Express engine compartment. So, Jingle Bells? I'm giving this movie seven jingle bells. It is beautiful to watch in 3D, except for the face acting. I think this movie is it works really well in 3D. I would never watch this again on TV, but I would maybe go see it in a theater on IMAX or in a 3D setting. I think there's some really nice set pieces, uh, some really great, beautifully animated uh, parts to it. When the, like, like the golden ticket fly, hero girls ticket flies out of the window and the journey we go on with it, which is kind of very reminiscent of the feather in Forrest Gump. Uh, I think Things like that make this worth the price of admission. But God, those faces just look down when they're talking to each other. <laughs> How about you? How many Jingle Bells are you giving this one? I am going to give the actual movie six Jingle Bells, and I'll tell you why. I think that this story is better experienced via the book. I think that if you want to have the experience of the Polar Express with your family as a tradition, then go and have that train experience and read the book with your family and leave the movie on the shelf. All right, we're going Six lower. Jingle bells. I mean, coming off of last, I mean, last week's Muppet Christmas Carol, you you were at nine and a half, and I was at a nine. So this is a big fall off. This is a big fall off. So let's. See <laughs> I just if, think that there's a better alternative to the movie in this particular case. I think just in the four weeks prior to this, we've we've already experienced uh, better movies that are more yeah. warranting of your time, and and that get to the idea of what Christmas is about. 
Well, and you don't have to feel like you're not experiencing the Polar Express. That's the important thing. Like I'm saying it's a great story and I'm saying that the the book and the the illustrations are beautiful. So you don't have to walk away from the Polar Express. You don't have to walk away from that Christmas tradition of going on the train. But maybe this time just just stick to the to the book. That's going to do it for this week, uh, for week five of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Don't forget to rate, rate, review, and subscribe to 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could leave us five stars, that would go a long way in making sure our hot chocolate never gets cool. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.